any observability system, you know, its job is to actually, with minimum input parameters, it should be able to tell you what is going on. That's the job of observability. That you know, the user should not be forced to make changes to the system. The monitoring system or the observability system should be able to go and find out what is the state of that particular system and you know what is going on with it. Hello, everybody, and thank you so much for tuning in. You're listening to Dedicated on Air where we bring together data experts to share their journey and impart their knowledge. This is Kate Stoshny, the founder of Dedicated and the host of Dedicated On Air. Welcome to the Dedicated Show. We are live here on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Twitch. And today we're talking about data observability. More importantly, we're going to talk about how do you actually make the business case for data observability? Now, before we begin, I want to let you know that today we have a really special guest with us, with us Rohit Chowdhury. He is the CEO of Acel Data. All right, I'm going to go ahead and bring our special guest up on our stage here. Hello, hello, Rohit. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Kate. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? You look like you've been rushed for some reason. <laughs> yeah, I am a little bit. You know, running a startup is always an act of rush, and you know that act, those acts of rushes actually go and build a company. So you know, good to be here, nevertheless. Yes, absolutely. I, I can actually relate to that. So we've got some answers here coming in. Um, some people are not familiar with that term, not familiar with that term, and um, some people have questions of how is this different than data discoverability. So data observability versus discoverability. So I think that is is great. And we'll get into sort of what is data observability in just a minute. I think it's always great to start with some introduction. So if you wouldn't mind, just tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Sure. Yeah. Thank you so much, first of all, you know, for having us over here. And thanks for the questions. You know, amazing questions are coming over right now. So my name is Rohit. You know, I'm the founder and CEO of this company called Excel Data. Excel Data has been, uh, you know, alive for the last three and a half years, and I've had, you know, the unique uh, opportunity to lead this company. I have worked for about 15 years in the field of data processing, particularly for, you know, uh, massive distributed scale uh, data processing. And I've worked with, you know, different kinds of personas, which include, you know, chief data and analytics officers, uh, you know, have worked with extremely large company CDOs. And in the past, I used to be involved with open source and closed source initiatives at Hortonworks and before that, several startups. I love doing startups, you know, love watching a little bit of sport and, uh, you know, reading books. So that's who I am. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing that with us. First question, what is the last book you read since you like reading books? The best book that I've actually read is the Gospel of Ramakrishna. Uh, it's a very, you know, it, it's a spiritual book, which is one of my favorites. And and the second best would come, you know, would be the Amazon Unbound book, which was written by Brad Stone more recently. It's an amazing book. Okay, thank you for sharing. And you mentioned you like startups. What What are some of your favorite things about running a startup? Well, you know, uh, it's a very interesting phenomena. You know, a lot of times people ask me, okay, how long have you been doing this startup? And, you know, I tell them, you know, it depends upon where you count. This company, Axel Data, has been alive, like I said, you know, for three and a half years. But my first startup experience was way back from 2008. I had joined in Mobi uh, as the third engineer, and in Mobi is now one of the largest mobile ad network companies in the world. And uh, I've just been hooked on to that lifestyle, to the concept of creation in a very small group of trusted people. And, you know, 
where you know that if you're going to fall several other people are going to trip behind you and therefore you walk carefully so i think that whole act of climbing together is something that makes it really exciting for me awesome i love i love the visual i just had in my head of people trying to climb this mountain and if you trip you fall on them and everyone's coming tumbling down so mm-hmm. i love it thank you for sharing that and so excel data has been your baby for i guess three and a half years now mm-hmm. what would you say is the mission of the company Well, the mission of the company is very simple. We want basically all large data organizations, large and small data organizations, to you know benefit from their investments in data systems, data processes. When somebody you know hopes and you know aspires to get a lot out of their data, become data driven, make sure that they benefit from you know some of the innovations that have happened in the open source community, in the closed source community. When they hear about these fantastic use cases as to to how you know target went and started predicting supply chains better walmart you know is making recommendations which are getting picked up by everybody uber is able to predict you know which area should they send their you know cabs to you know other businesses also aspire to follow these trends and patterns and they would like to get as successful as some of the other companies so our objective mm-hmm. is to make sure that you know if you're making an investment in data and analytics machine learning and ai you should have the ability to run it accurately to make sure that you get the best outcome so that's the mission of excel data now how do we do it is what this whole you know session is going to be about so there's going to be plenty of time to cover that okay awesome thank you so much now i know we started off the session with asking the audience if they're familiar with the term data observability and i would say the vast majority are not familiar with data observability and you know folks here are eager to learn so i think that's a great place for us to start how would you define data observability Yeah, I mean the simple way of defining observability would be that you know when you break a bone you actually go and get an x-ray, you know the doctor orders an x-ray and and you go and look at you know which bone have you broken, you know unfortunately if that happens, you know that would be a sad situation but you know you are actually trying to look beyond the surface or beneath the surface and trying to find out what is going on within your let's say muscular muscular system or musculoskeletal system. If you have, let's say, a tendon which is broken, then you go and get yourself an MRI done because you're trying to exactly pinpoint where the issues are. I mm-hmm. think any observability system, you know, its job is to actually, with minimum input parameters, it should be able to tell you what is going on. That's the job of observability. That you know, the user should not be forced to make changes to the system. The monitoring system or the observability system should be able to go and find out. what is the state of that particular system and you know what is going on with it and particularly these uh these tests are involved when something has gone wrong and you know sometimes you also want to improve things and therefore you're also looking at things when the, when things are perfectly all right right data observability is essentially the ability for users of the system particularly data engineering teams to go and look at the state of their data and the supply chains of data which powered the the rest of the system which is data and analytics systems machine learning ai custom dashboards reporting systems to monitor the supply chain of data and to find where there whether there are clogs in that data, that supply chain finding out if there are issues if the train has not left the station or if the train is delayed finding those issues without putting in a lot of effort is essentially data observability now one of the common questions that we get is you know how different is it from you know traditional observability and uh, the answer to that is very simple 
that, you know, 15 years of large-scale deployment of IT applications resulted in technologies such as, you know, and companies such as Datadog, AppDynamics, and many others. And now in the next 15 years, what we've done is that, you know, we've actually deployed a lot of data applications. And when Mm -hmm. we talk about these data applications, these are inherently more complex, and they need to be, you know, monitored in a very different way. And that sort of is the specific category of data observability. Oh, thank you so much. And as you were providing your definition, we had several questions come up. You, you've inspired questions. And I'll take this question here from Matt. He's asking, how is observability different from data quality? And I'm, I'm sure you get this question often because I have, I have um, heard this before as well. All the time, all the time. You know, this is like one of my favorite questions. So if you were to sort of, you know, take this in in the form of what has really evolved? I mean, what's the backdrop of the story? So if you went back about, you know, 10 years and you looked at, you know, what a typical CDO was doing, and CDO is just a, you know, a metaphor for people who actually own the data and the data processing, but typically they're known as CDOs or SVPs or data platform engineering. You know, they're like multiple waves of these, uh, you know, different CDOs. The first generation CDO was responsible for bringing up, you know, a few data warehouses, making sure that the reports to the execs, to the different teams, all of those were readily available and they were sent together. Their responsibilities were ensuring that, you know, the right quality of data came from RDBMS sources. They hit, you know, the data warehouses at the right opportune moment and, you know, the dashboards were created. The wave two CDOs, you know, which is essentially the next generation CDOs, they actually came and said, look, we're going to catalog this whole thing. We're going to create an MDM process. We're going to catalog the whole thing and we're going to share all of this data so that, you know, this data can be widely used by a large number of people. And that's where, you know, the whole concept of data quality and MDM and data cataloging started. Now, the Wave 3 CDOs, their responsibilities have expanded even from there. So their responsibilities include, for example, today, they own the data teams, they own the technology, and they own the end-to-end data delivery. But what has really changed, you know, so for sure, their scope of responsibility has increased. But, you know, with that also has changed is, you know, the amount of volume of data that is getting processed, the kinds of data elements that are getting processed, which is, you know, structured, unstructured data coming from different kinds of clicks, marketing data, users, data, sales data, all of that. Now, in this world, what is happening is that the quality of data or the reliability of data is not contingent on the data quality processing alone. It is actually response or it is the outcome of highly reliable data is based on a few conditions. And those conditions include the rate at which you're getting data that should be consistent. If that goes up, then you should know and therefore you should be able to scale your processing system. So what has really changed is that, you know, data quality is not just about, you know, looking at the RDBMS data system, which is ready for consumption, but it has to be end to end, which is, you know, from the point of origin all the way to the point of consumption. So I think that is the biggest change where, you know, a lot of processing has to shift left. It has to be pre-processed before it becomes ready for consumption. And I think that is, you know, the fundamental difference between just data quality as a process versus Mm -hmm. data observability, which is much more comprehensive, multidimensional, goes all the way from your data pipelines, uh, you know, monitoring data pipelines to monitoring the data reliability and monitoring those fundamental compute systems and ecosystems, which which should operate at, you know, high SLOs and SLAs. Yeah, thank you so much for providing this sort of differentiation here that people have been wondering about. You mentioned something earlier in the session that companies have been investing in in data science, right, and into technology, into learning and sort of managing their data. Have you seen a similar level of investment into things like data observability? 
I think so. What has happened, you know, when we started the company and, you know, we did not start the company, by the way, uh, out of thin air. My background yeah. at Hortonworks actually taught me a lot of, you know, the kind of challenges that customers were facing. Uh, you know, customers were going through on-premise infrastructure and they were finding it very difficult to operate, you know, both from an infrastructure perspective and also from a data processing perspective. Now, you know, if you look at the world today, you know, just in the last three and a half years, the world has completely changed. You know, when when I was quitting Hortonworks and starting Excel later, there was just one large major ecosystem, which is called the Hadoop on-premise ecosystem. And, you know, just look at how things have completely changed. Now things have evolved into, you know, things like Snowflake, different kinds of CSPs, different kinds of, you know, uh, Databricks, for example, different kinds of ISVs. When you put all of that together, what you find is that, uh, you know, today companies and CDOs are responsible for dealing with multiple ecosystems where data reside, depending upon their quality requirement and, you know, the kind of businesses that they serve. If you were to operate this, you know, complex multidimensional data cloud, you know, quote unquote, it is very difficult unless you have an exact map of what is going on. So you need to mm-hmm. know what kind of assets you have, what kind of data pipelines are running, what kind of businesses are you supporting, what is real time, what is batch, you know, what needs to be at extremely high levels of, you know, accuracy and what is okay for reprocessing. And I think that is an area that all CDOs are struggling with today. And these are essentially wave three CDOs and I'm using it as a metaphor. It could be the SVP of, you know, data engineering or, you know, the CTO in some cases, depending upon how the organization is sort of, you know, put together. But, you know, absolutely, everybody is using it now. You know, some of our largest customers are companies like PhonePay, Walmart, Oracle, Verisk. And all of these guys are investing heavily in data observability right now. Yeah, thank, thank you for this. So you mentioned Walmart and then a few other companies. Are there specific industries and sectors that uh, your company is focused on serving? Yeah, I think, you know, there's like a distinction. If you look at the lens, uh, the lens has to be the amount of data that you're processing and the kind of ecosystems that you support. So typically we look at, you know, when we look at anybody who has 10 terabytes and above of data in their, you know, different kinds of data lakes, whether it is on-premise hybrid or, you know, on the cloud, any of these three scenarios, and you are running a complex ecosystem, which could include, you know, RDBMS systems, distributed data processing system, you have an ingestion system. When you have some of these criteria, you know, then you become a customer of interest for us because we know that you're dealing with complexity, which is very difficult to, you know, deal with with just people. It has to be automated. A lot of these things have to be learned by the system. So I think mm-hmm. a lot of these criteria work. In terms of industry, you know, it's anybody's guess. You know, most of the data is being generated by financial services, you know, healthcare companies, internet and digital companies, and companies which are undergoing these massive transformations, which is, you know, totally data-driven. Yes, yes, absolutely. I think that's where the best use cases for data come from. You know, like financial services and healthcare are usually the top two that I hear from uh, from other people. There is a really good question here from George. Uh, he's asking, where would data observability fall in the data lifecycle? Yeah. I mean, we prefer to say that, you know, it is as early as, you know, ab initio. You know, if you're starting today, then, you know, mm-hmm. you should insert data observability. Because, you know, what ends up happening is, you know, today, if you look at number of years of investment for different kinds of companies, they've invested at least five plus years. And if you've already put in five plus years of investments into your data systems, then you're coming on on the back of that. You've created all problems and now you're trying trying to weed all of those one by one. 
Unfortunately, that's not the best way to do it. So our recommendation is that as you're building your stack together, stack up together, which is, you know, you may include Spark, you may include, you know, Databricks, you may include Snowflake in your stack. That's your choice. But, you know, a few things you should put guardrails around, which is, can I figure out, you know, how much data am I processing? Can I figure out, you know, what is slow? What is not working? Can I figure out how much is it going to cost me today and how much is it going to cost me on an ongoing basis? I think if you can put some of those basic questions or answers to those basic questions in place, I think that's a start. So my mm-hmm. recommendation is that, you know, as soon as you're ready to hit production, you know, as soon as your development is complete, and as soon as you have onboarded one or two business lines, which are using data and analytics, machine learning, or AI, I think that would be the best time. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. And I know we're here to talk about how, how to get executive buy-in for data observability, right? So I think this question from Petrie, if it's right in line with what we want to talk about here, and his question is, let's say he's having lunch with VPs of sales and procurement, and he wants to explain data observability to get them aware and actionable. So how do you go about starting the story and getting to the pitch? Yeah. A few questions that you can just ask, you know, right from uh, going from uh, lunch to a sale would be, are you sure that our data is reliable? You know, that will just get a conversation started. And, you know, just ask them, how sure are you that, you know, we are processing the right, uh, you know, data and we're making decisions based off the right sets of data. I think, you know, the best example to look at would be the Zillow example that, you know, Zillow just turned turtle because, you know, one of the models didn't, you know, I think one of the models started processing data incorrectly and it was pricing houses out of the market. It was buying at higher prices, selling at lower prices. When you have those kind of business outages or, you know, if you had a critical outage on, let's say, an infrastructure component, which was related to data, you know, just ask how many outages have we suffered? That could be the second question. The number three question would be, do you have an idea what's happening with our data engineering team and how low the productivity has become because they're just solving day-to-day production issues as opposed to building revenue, generating new business use cases? You know, any of those questions are going to lead you to a fantastic conversation that says, okay, do you have eyes on your system? You know, do you even know what's going on? I think, you know, that's the best way to start the conversation. And the answers could be, okay, let's put some eyes on the system. You know, that's the answer. And, you know, the answer is, of course, you know, why not data observability? Yeah, I love this. So I'm picturing the one scenario, right? We go at the table and the question, how reliable do you think your your data is? There are some common responses that you've heard uh, in your experience from you know, salespeople, the procurement or or others that are not in data. Yeah, so some of you know the, the responses that we hear initially is okay, how different is it from you know standard observability? But we already have an APM. Can't we mm. just use an APM? And what you end up finding is that, you know, there's like a subtle distinction between what is going on in the APM world and what is happening in the, you know, the data world. And typically you will actually be able to find that, you know, split very, very quickly. The split is, you know, the the guys who are running IT and applications, they have nothing to do with, you know, the guys and, and the teams that are running data engineering. All the share is the common infrastructure, whether it's on the cloud or on-premise. But beyond mm-hmm. that, you know, these two groups have literally very little in common. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for that. And um, I just wanted to ask, did you want to share something with the audience, either any visuals that you had prepared that you wanted to showcase? If not, we can go on into next questions. I just wanted to clarify. Yeah. I mean, we can do a little bit of a screen share. You know, let me just try to put a few slides. Yeah. Guys in the audience, you guys want to see some stuff, let us know in the comments. I think that's always fun. Uh, seeing is believing, right, Rahit? And we do have so many great questions coming in. 
So we'll we'll, yeah. uh, we'll try to get through as many as we can. Yeah, and and we can keep taking questions, you know, while I'm trying to, you know, just get to a uh, share screen. Yeah, go for okay. it. All right, let's see. There is one here from Ravit, similar to what we what we had about the difference between X and Y, right? Again, now the difference between AI observability versus data observability. Well, you know, these are very, very good questions. I, I would say that's a very intelligent question. And here is the way that you can actually think about it. Just like, you know, databases were sort of, you know, if you went 15 or 20 years back, everybody was using just Oracle. And Oracle, you know, it's, it's a fantastic, you know, RDBMS system, but it is also a lot more than that. And when you think about, you know, what are those different things that you could achieve with Oracle, you know, those were endless about, you know, 10 years back. But now if you look at, you know, what is going on in the world is that, you know, most of, you know, the companies, they're using purpose-built use case specific databases, which is if you have a distributed store, then you could consider something like you could potentially look at using something like a Hadoop or you could use cloud storage. Or, you know, if you have a data warehousing requirement, then you would use any of, you know, Snowflake, Databricks and, and God knows how many other ecosystems you have. Now, what is happening really is that, you know, depending upon the kind of usage that you have, you use different kinds of databases. Just like that, the variety of data processing elements that we have today, whether it's with regards to, you know, AI, or machine learning, or, you know, data warehousing, or SQLs, you know, any of these, they actually require, you know, very different purpose-built use case specific monitoring as well. So if you're using, you know, if you're looking to monitor web applications, you would absolutely go to, you know, uh, you know, App Dynamics and Datadog or any of those standard observability systems. Just like that, if you're, you know, trying to monitor your AI, now it mm -hmm. depends upon, you know, what kind of AI algorithms you want to monitor. Are you monitoring algorithms or are you monitoring the flow of data to the algorithm? So it depends upon, you know, are we monitoring the pre-state or are we monitoring the post-state? Is it post-production? Are we looking at, you know, drifts in data? Are we looking at, you know, changes in data? So those are like subtleties that one needs to be very, very clear about. Okay, got it. Thank you. And uh, every single person who responded said yes to the question of seeing something on screen. So absolutely lots of people are, you know, dying to see this. And I'm going to go ahead and share your screen here and let you take it away. Sure. You know, uh, just a backdrop of information about, you know, what the company does and, and who we are. So, you know, so far we've raised about $45 million in funding and, we you know, we're funded by some of the best investors inside Lightspeed, Sorensen, and many others. And, you know, our leadership team comes from many of these, you know, large data scale processing companies. So what's the story? You know, when you think about why is data observability so important, you know, and I can just tell you this, that data is now going to drive businesses for all enterprises, you know, large, small, doesn't matter, bar none, you have to get good with your data. And if your data is powering the enterprise, then that whole grid has to be reliable. You know, uh, if you don't have good, good, high quality, reliable data, then it's going to be very difficult for you to get the outcomes from data that you actually uh, desire to. Now, our mission is to sort of eliminate complexity, scale the data utilization, and generate, you know, much, much better outcomes from a business point of view. The biggest challenge that everybody has today is that, you know, they're processing more data, they're processing more use cases. Business has an unending appetite to consume more business use cases, and, you know, that's related to data. So one of the things that, you know, we figured out very early in the journey, as I was describing earlier in the conversation, that, you know, you've got to monitor the data pipelines, you've got to monitor the, the quality of data, and you've got to monitor the compute systems which are underlying. And when you put all those, those two things together, what you find is actually you need a multidimensional system which provides visibility into these very complex, opaque data systems, 
something that has the capability of synthesizing signal across these layers and then give you ideas as to how you can optimize test experiment and you know get to success very very quickly another point that i was making earlier is that you know if you looked at traditional apms you know they those were built for you know sort of the application world where you knew that the flow of the web request would conduct a few actions the examples could be that you know onboarding somebody on your hrms you know booking a ticket those are standard flows which essentially have a beginning and an end but if you think of data systems you know they don't have standard ends or beginnings you know you're trying to identify the patterns that are hiding within data you know you're trying to find out what are the people who are buying number 9 nike shoes which are blue in color which places do they live in so you're basically just analyzing a bunch of different data which is you know so much so the communication is not human to machine you're not touching the browser it's actually machine to machine these algorithms and processes are feeding one into the other into the third one through a cascade and when you think about that fabric of compute you know data observability or you know apm observability is not going to be enough so that's where we come in you know we're essentially trying to form a glue between you know business users practitioners and operations and you know each of these different layers that we have whether it is you know at the compute layer which is you know giving a lot more uh, visibility into how your infrastructure and data processing is going on in addition to that how are you doing on data reliability and data management you know is your data reliable can you manage it better and you know finally to the business that you know how are you doing on your business processing because you know if you expected x number of recommendations to happen in the first 30 minutes of the day or you know y number of rides to be booked in a certain zip code in san francisco you know you should be able to figure out you know how many of those events actually happened but do you have the right level of information but you know think of it this way that every company is today trying to mimic the best customer you know customer centric application behavior today which is next best action recommendation optimizing supply chains you know directing local services or you know uh, people who can provide local services to the direction where you know a lot of request is going to come in so if you think of it from an overall perspective everybody is trying to get more out of their data and you know the three groups that have got, that have to come together essentially the business you know the data engineering group and you know the practitioners who are using that data to you know get get by their working day which is you know so much so operational thesis but you know here is the challenge with data operation this is just you know sort of reiterating these points a little bit you've got three kinds of pain there's operational pain because you're dealing with complex systems there's innovation pain because you're using your best engineers your best data engineers you're actually putting them back into the operational world because they are actually going and solving the kind of issues that you're getting on a day-to-day basis as opposed to letting them go and innovate on the business model and work with the business or work with the data that is getting generated and finally when you head to the cloud you know budget is going to be a very big topic you know for the next couple of years and potentially for the next 5 years as this trillion dollar opportunity of migration to the cloud starts and begins in a very very meaningful and significant way i think we are going to talk a lot about you know financial controls you know aspects that enable teams to to control their budget so what do we do we essentially make your data engineering reliable agile and optimized we allow you to you know predict preempt and resolve issues even before they occur and in some cases you know if they have occurred then we give you the best visibility the mri or the high definition image that we were talking about you know you actually get a lot of recommendations you are able to simulate performance of the different kinds of workloads and you're then able to figure out you know how much capacity do you need on an ongoing basis and those are like really important things some for our customers but i want to be talk about a few use cases you know you know one of our customers 
PhonePay, it's a Walmart subsidiary. You know, they've actually processed about half a trillion dollars, you know, I think in 2021 overall on their platform. So it is the Venmo, the PayPal equivalent, you know, of India. 250 million users, over 250 million users on a daily active basis. And, you know, over about 500,000 merchants across, you know, the country. And India is a very populous country. So the amount of transactions that they do, you know, is just phenomenal. Now, what we've managed to do with them is that, you know, they had real-time OLTP and OLAP systems which were required for them to deliver to their business. And the biggest challenge was that they were actually, you know, sort of in a triangular fight with Google Pay on one end and, you know, another Berkshire Hathaway company called Paytm. And they've actually managed to win this market entirely. They're about 49% of the market. And the reason that they primarily attribute to is is that they were able to scale their, you know, data processing systems to a level where, you know, the competition just couldn't keep up. Now, you may say that, okay, why didn't Google actually, you know, end up scaling the systems? Of course, Google can scale the system. There are other elements of business. But, you know, for PhonePay to succeed, I think they had to be additionally reliable because, you know, for exactly the reason that, you know, Google was anyway going to be an excellent provider for services, and that was a given. So for PhonePay, you know, what we ended up doing was that we put in the controls on their streaming OLAP and OLTP systems. We monitor all of that at scale. You know, at peak volumes, they're actually going and doing close to about 4,000 transactions per second right now, these days. And we've scaled their overall ecosystem from, you know, about 70 nodes all the way to 1,500 nodes. Of course, you know, the business is going and scaling really well. A lot of conversation today is also related to, you know, if you go to a, a CDO, they're thinking in terms of, you know, data meshes. And I would say that, you know, PhonePay has been one of the first data meshes that I saw, you know, which was implemented in the true sense of the word, that it was domain driven. It was serving, you know, functions that were really required, meaningful, and, uh, you know, it has scaled really well. So they have a payments ecosystem, they have, you know, a user ecosystem, and they've got, you know, other attribution ecosystems. And each of those, they are driven by these unique data domain uh, or domain driven data lakes. You know, we've saved them so much money and just scaled the system out. So this is, by the way, you know, one of the biggest success stories that we've had as a company. And of course, you know, uh, they've been great sponsors and kudos to their tech team that they've gone one. But, you know, one of the things that they do tell us is that for the last two years, they've not had a single significant severity one issue, not one. They have absolute visibility and complete control over their data systems. And, you know, not once have they gone down. And, you know, consider this, they're actually running all of these transaction systems on mobile apps. And if any transaction goes down, then you have a problem because, you know, somebody's getting worried that they did not receive the money that somebody else sent to them. So mission critical, high volume, complex, and, you know, uptime requirement. Those were like the four use cases that we solved for them. Awesome. Thank you so much, Rahit. And we are getting some really good comments and uh, more questions coming in. Uh, there was somebody who even asked for the slides. Not sure if that's something. Oh, here, Petrie was asking if he can get a copy of your slides. Not sure if that's something you share or if there's a website that he can go to to learn more. Yeah, a lot of this material is already, you know, you can go to AxelData.io and slash resources. You know, some of these use cases, for example, the phone pay use case, it's actually published in a lot more detail over there. So you could just you know, okay. uh, take it from there. Yeah, so I want to talk about PhonePay for a minute here. I think that's a, a phenomenal case study that you shared with us. And I think you you said you saved them $5 million a year, which that's huge. Um, so congratulations on that. I wanted Thank to you. dig a little deeper since we're talking about how to get executive buy-in. Maybe share a little of your secret of how, how did you end up getting executive buy-in into something like data observability with them? 
Yeah. So, you know, when you go and speak with, you know, an exec sponsor, they're actually not looking for data observability, right? It's a new category. Uh, so it does take a little bit of work to educate, you know, your key customers, the data engineering teams. But if you talk to them, for, you know, for five or 10 minutes, you actually find out that, okay, this is exactly what they need. They're looking for data observability. They're looking for getting better insights and, you know, information about what's going on in their ecosystem. And when you start thinking of, of you know, the kind of problems that they're facing, you can obviously go and recommend that, you know, go start using data observability. But like I mentioned earlier, just start with the questions that, you know, what are you processing today? What's the volume of scale? You know, what mm-hmm. kind of reliability challenges have you seen? Do you see that, you know, systems are failing? Do you see processing is failing? You know, what stage are you at? And it also right. depends upon the life cycle, you know. If you're still building your system, if you're still on the first generation of analytics, you're still working with, you know, data warehousing or, you know, old data warehousing system, then you're probably not ready yet. So I think a qualification is really required. You know, the more, and I talk, there's an important, you know, distinction or a way of thinking about it. You know, how big is your surface area today? And if your surface Mm -hmm. area is too big and if your engineers are spending more than 20% of their time in maintaining systems, I think you should just go and, you know, implement it so thoroughly. Yeah, and I think it's such a good point that you can't go to an executive and say, you need data observability, because they'll just be like, no, what are you talking about? But starting with a conversation and asking these questions that really get them thinking, I think that's a really good approach. We had a good question here from Ramdas, and he's asking, how does your system handle data drifts since this can affect data pipelines and AI ML models? Yeah, absolutely. You know, if you ask any ML practitioner or AI practitioner or even, you know, an analytics uh, practitioner, I think the biggest challenge that they face is that they're trying to look at, you know, how the patterns of data, you know, what is the change? What is really changing? You know, how did the world change between yesterday and today? Now, if the Mm -hmm. model was predicting that, you know, the following things would happen and that has fundamentally changed, you know, why has it changed? Has it changed because, you know, the state of the world has changed? And what's the representation of that change of state or that changed state of the world it has to be represented by the underlying data and data drifts are very very common you know and especially in today's world for example if you're on the 30th of the month you know last day of the month of course you're you're actually getting a lot more transactional data because it's the day of closing for let's say a financial services firm if you're actually looking at let's say traffic patterns and suddenly you find that there's a massive salesforce event uh, for which about you know 20000 people have assembled in salesforce you know then obviously uber's going to send a lot more you know, cabs in that region. And therefore, you know, that needs to be understood really well. If you're hoping to get more revenue or if you're trying to, you know, predict your revenue or forecast your revenue using models, if you're in Netflix, you'd like to see how many people are watching what kind of titles and how much are they paying for that and, you know, which titles would actually generate a lot more, uh, you know, popularity at 9 p.m. in the night in the U.S. on Pacific time. So for any of these, you know, but, you know, there's an interesting, you know, way of looking at it. If there's, you know, a 49ers game, you know, in San Francisco, you know, then then a lot of people are actually watching that game and therefore, you know, a fewer people will watch the title. So being able to forecast all of this and to understand, you know, the changes in data and what caused that, you need to understand, you know, how data is drifting. So the way that we think about data reliability is that, you know, at least in, in the product offerings that we have is it's a multi-step process. It starts mm-hmm. with, you know, automated anomaly detection, goes to, you know, rule-based execution, you know, identifying data drifts and schema drifts, and along with that, you know, providing all of this information through APIs. So that, you know, when data engineers are writing their data pipelines, they should be able to go and write or plug all of these APIs into their pipelines itself to get all the advanced warning that they need and ensure that, you know, they're actually not suffering because of data drift. 
Okay, thank you for that. And we had a, a good question earlier that I didn't get a chance to get to that I'd like to now from Jeffrey. He's asking for a data strategy that is hardware, software, platform agnostic. Uh, for him, you know, that's the holy grail. And I think for, for several companies and people, that is the, the mission. Is this achievable with the current state of available technology? And maybe you can talk about Excel data here. Yeah, we absolutely are. So, you know, this is completely uh, achievable, you know. So some of our customers have, you know, Gen 1, Gen 2, Gen 3 solutions. And how do I define that? You know, Gen 1 was essentially Teradata and NetEase are only on-premise. Gen 2 is Teradata and, um, you know, Teradata, NetEase and or, you know, Hadoop on-premise. And Gen 3 is, you know, Teradata, NetEase continue to be there. You know, mainframes are also there in the mix. You know, a lot of extract data coming out of mainframes. They also have Hadoop, and finally, they have a lot of processing, you know, for data, particularly for data at consumption. And they also have things in, in the mix, which is Snowflake, Databricks, several of the CSP players. And one of the objectives that we had as a company was that we are going to tie to the fundamental unit of compute in the data ecosystem. And that's nothing but data itself, you know. And data is the thing that actually causes, you know, some kind of or has some kind of display, some kind of gravity. And when data moves from, let's say, a data warehousing system, which is Gen 1, all the way to Gen 3 solutions, which are on the cloud, then you can absolutely see that you have to attach yourself to data. So our solutions, they actually work across on-premise, hybrid cloud infrastructure, across CSPs, ISVs. And, you know, containerization has really changed the whole world. So if you're deploying on a VPC or a private cloud, you know, we support VPC air gap uh, deployments. If you're on the cloud, you know, you can deploy a SaaS version. So, you know, the challenge for software vendors such as us today is that yeah. we've got to cater to a lot of these environments. And therefore, you know, the kind of talent and, you know, engineering that you need to do needs to be, you know, really out of the world. Oh, yeah. And things are always changing, right? Earlier, you mentioned that in the past three and a half years, you've seen so many changes. And this leads me to my next question, which is, what are some of your predictions for the next, let's say, three to five years in the, in the space of data observability? Yeah. I mean, data observability is going to go mainstream this year. I think, you know, there will be Google terms that or people will start looking for just like we started looking for, you know, streaming services on Google. I think, you know, people will start looking at data observability. I think analysts would have caught wind of what is actually going on. I think the practitioners were ahead of them this time around and like several other occasions. So I think analysts will start producing a lot of results or, you know, uh, research on this topic. A lot more successful use cases will start coming. And particularly in the field of, you know, when somebody is undertaking a very, very complex migration, particularly to the cloud, I think what we'll see is that, you know, the, uh, customers will benefit widely from data observability. And I think a lot of adoption is going to come from that frame because, you know, when you're doing a large scale migration to the cloud from your on-premise systems, I think you'll end up uh, using uh, concepts from data observability, which is to find out, you know, catalog and validate what kind of data should we go, identification of critical data elements, migration of those critical data elements, making sure that, you know, the reconciliation of data is available. You know, you're able to certify the data quality, which is going on on the other side and ensuring that a lot of, you know, processing is sort of, you know, guaranteed that you're not going to fall off the cliff as soon as you go to the cloud. The final prediction, I think, is that, you know, cost is going to be an important factor. When customers mm -hmm. were on premise, they were actually worried about, you know, resource consumption, noisy neighbors, many of that. Cloud solves a lot of those problems because, you know, you're automatically scaling. But what it does not solve very well is, you know, financial control, guardrails and, you know, FinOps. So I think that's going to be another big trend. Yeah, thank you for sharing your your vision. I think it's it's funny you said we don't want to fall off the cliff going to the cloud. How else do we get there, Rahit? I think we have to jump, right, to get, to get into yeah. the cloud. But... <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, of course, you do fall, but you know, you right. fall with either you know a good hand glider or a parachute. You know, you don't have to just fall. It can be you know an informed jump that you know you're ready to do your you know whatever it is that adventure sport that you actually prefer to. I think what what you need to do is you you have to undertake that migration in a very informed way. That you know, catalog, validate your sources, find out your critical data elements, migrate. You know. what is really uh, you know required you know and what is not required at any stage uh, so i think right. finding out or you know understanding which workloads are critical bursty and therefore they should move to the cloud if you have mm-hmm. that information at hand then you know that migration process becomes a lot more easier because you know at this point in time we're talking about you know petabyte scale data migrations those are not easy to do you know companies have failed you know two or three times now as so, yeah. you know we are working with a company which is to undergoing a third migration a third attempt for their end wholesale migration and you know oh, the wow. previous two were, were unsuccessful we've had a customer who's moved to the cloud you know hoping to get and benefit all the auto scaling components that today's modern isps provide the challenge is that you know they ran out of budget you know for the whole year in less than you know a quarter so a wow. lot of these things can go wrong Well, you know what they say, third time's the charm, right? So hopefully for that company going through their <laughs> migration for the third time, hopefully they uh see some success this time. Uh Rahid, I want to really thank you so much for joining the dedicated show with us today. The last question I like to ask the guest is where can people go to sort of lear- learn more or continue the conversation with you? Yeah, so you know our resources pages uh they are really good, you know, some of uh, you know I believe some of my teammates are here. I think just send us an email at you know sales at excelera dot io or mm-hmm. info at excelera dot io and you know we'd we'd love to hear from you and follow our LinkedIn page which is you know very informative. We publish a lot of information, very good quality content on our LinkedIn pages, and so is our Twitter handle. You know excelera dot excelera io. I think that's mm-hmm. the Twitter handle, and you know uh, just follow our website. We publish you know tremendous amount of good, high quality, dense content which you should be able to take to your procurement and sales guys. and they like to happily sign off on a, on a fat number that you're looking for. Yes, I think it's always helpful to use somebody else's case studies to prove a point, right? Like look what they were able to achieve and then you can bring that to your to your lunch meeting. Um so Rahid, thank you so much again and guys, if you're listening, make sure you follow Excel Data on LinkedIn, on Twitter and follow Rahid on LinkedIn as well. Rahid, thank you so much again for your time and I will see you online. Yeah, thanks so much Kate and you know, hope everybody had a good time today. Looks like we got a lot of value out of the session so thank you so much. Of course. All right. Thanks so much Kate. Take care. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Dedicated On Air podcast. We really hope you'll come back for more episodes and until then, stay dedicated.